0: Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio.
1: And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you, along with Kevin Randall. Kevin, so Project Blue Book uh, stopped uh, operating 50 years ago. Why now write the best of the Project Blue Book?
0: One of the problems was the files were classified or restricted so that we as civilians couldn't get into them. They were declassified and sent to the National Archives in uh, 1976. But it's just it recently that um, I think we've realized that it's a real goldmine out there, that there's a lot of good information in there if you can wade through all the nonsense that the Air Force uh, threw out and some of the experts threw out about uh, citing conclusions. And that was you know, the whole point. Let's look at these cases and see what we can learn about them. Level Land springs to mind, and this was the case in 1957 where the object was seen close to the ground, stalled car engines, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I mean, we got a craft interacting with the environment, for crying out loud. It's multiple witness. There's a, witnesses at least 13 locations that, that talked about that. And so we can go back into that case now and we can look at what the Air Force said, what uh, NICAP, which was the, one of the civilian organizations investigating it, said, see who was right, who was wrong, and bring additional inf- information to it. A guy named Don Berlinson, who lives coincidentally in Roswell, and Leveland is like three hours away by car from, from uh, Roswell, Right. did an investigation in 2000-2001, and he was able to talk to the daughter of the sheriff, no, the sheriff said, had said publicly, repeatedly, well, I saw a streak of light in the distance. Nothing happened. I you know, didn't get a good look at it. You go back and you talk to the family, and they say, well, the sheriff was told by the Air Force not to talk about it. So we learned a little wow. bit more about what they said and that he got much closer to it, and he saw an uh, oval-shaped or an egg-shaped object.
1: Was the, was the Condon Committee from the University of Colorado, I believe, Yes. was that a smoke screen?
0: Oh absolutely. They were they were designed it was designed to specifically end the Air Force public investigation of UFOs and that's exactly what they did. That was what their job was and they did it.
1: And they did it and they did it well
0: in terms of ending it. And ending well, the public investigation, as we've now learned, of course, we of course Project Moondust tells us that it that it didn't end then. When the name Moondust was compromised in nineteen eighty six. Uh, Robert Todd wrote to them and asked for what the new name was, and they said, we can't tell you, it's p- properly classified. So it continued on beyond new moon dust, and we heard inklings of the project, and then we, of course, learned what happened with the ATEP program and that sort of thing. So we realized there's been an ongoing government investigation of UFOs almost from, from 1946, actually, instead of Kenneth Arnold citing in 1947.
1: How many cases did they say were unidentified in, in the Project Blue Book?
0: Project Blue Book said they investigated some twelve thousand cases and about seven hundred and one of them were unidentified. The problem is
1: all you need is one.
0: Well, but but the real problem is when you look at the Project Blue profiles, there's like four or five thousand cases that are labeled as insufficient data for scientific analysis, which means they're not identified. They've just slapped a label on it so it doesn't fall into the unidentified category. I talk about one of the cases in uh in the book where a guy had seen, seen the object late at night. He flashed his light at it with pi 3.14, because the only thing he could th- look, think about it, and got some kind of response. And he reported to the Air Force, and the Air Force labeled it insufficient data. And he wrote, what more data did you meet, do you need? I told you everything I know. I gave you the directions. I gave you the times. I gave you the altitudes. I gave you all of this stuff. What more do you need? They finally labeled it as unidentified, which shows you if you, I guess, made enough noise, the Air Force would... Uh, reversed themselves, but they uh, just—they didn't bother with it. They didn't care. They just labeled it insufficient data. There was another case, cases in Florida, and I talk a little bit about this as well, where an Air Air Force major is required to investigate the case, and you can read from his report that he is just really annoyed at having this extra duty. He thinks it's absolutely ridiculous. He's making fun of the people who had seen the object, including Air Force personnel, being young, uneducated, stupid people, seeing UFOs and UFOs. That comes across in in the report, so you get an idea of the attitude of some of the people the Air Force was using to investigate the sightings. June
1: 24, 1947, an American aviator and businessman is flying a small plane near Mount Rainier in Washington, and he reportedly sees nine unusual objects, and that began the Kenneth Arnold sightings. What do you think he saw, Kevin?
0: Well, (laughs) the interesting thing about that is I think at one point they were talking about it being the... um, XB 35, which is the flying wing, but in that time frame, all the flying wings that they had were grounded because there were problems with the gearboxes. They were inherently unstable. Uh, The B 2 bomber is an upgraded version of the flying wing, Mm -hmm. but they have fly by wire computer. computers keep the stability of the aircraft, but in in the 1950s they didn't have that. They, They crashed, but he didn't see that. He didn't see pelicans. He didn't see wisps of snow blowing off the peaks. He saw something very unusual. This is where we always say the modern era began, but it actually began earlier than that, and there's evidence that there was an unofficial investigation at Wright Field in, starting in December of 1946 about UFOs. Once we get to June of 1947 and Arnold sighting, then it flips over into a more, invest, a more um, official investigation.
1: And ironically, a few weeks later, Roswell, New Mexico, that big event happens. They had to be tied together somehow.
0: I think that what happened is when Arnold made his sighting and it made the big splash, the government didn't know how to respond to it. They didn't know what it was. I think Ruppelt, who was one time the chief of Project Blue, was saying the the Pentagon was in a panic. They didn't know what was going on. Suddenly, two weeks after Arnold, you've got something that fell at Roswell, and the whole attitude changes. And the next day, it's reported, I think, in July 1947 in the newspapers that the Roswell Army Airfield had captured a flying saucer. The next day, you you read the explanations. Well, I was just a weather balloon. But the important story was the Army and Navy moved at that point to suppress the stories of flying saucers whizzing through the atmosphere. So, what changed between July 8th and July 9th that required the military to in uh, the government to to start su- attempting to suppress the stories of flying saucers? And they picked one up at Roswell and they realized what was going on, and it and it. Uh, They realized that they had to uh, determine exactly what was going on, and they didn't need a lot of uh, outside influences influencing their investigations, which is why they started to suppress the stories, get the public uninterested in the flying saucers, and they could move into a secret arena and determine exactly what was going on.
1: We're with Kevin Randall. His latest book is called The Best of Project Blue Book. What about Colonel Howard McCoy? What was his role in all of this?
0: Howard McCoy is an interesting guy. He starts out in, uh, during the flu, Foo Fighters in World War II, the uh, lights and things that the uh, pilots and the airmen were reporting.
1: They saw these little disc-type objects flying all over the place, mm-hmm. didn't
0: they? Uh, disc-shaped objects, they, uh, balls of light. They would fire at them. The bullets would disappear into the balls of light, and, and nothing would come out. Uh, they, they followed the formations. The idea, that the, the fear was it was some kind of an access secret weapons. So they were very concerned about it. McCoy was involved in the investigation of that. And when the war ended, the, the uh, immediacy of trying to learn what it was ended as well. Nobody cared anymore what it was because the war's over. They don't, they're not a threat anymore. Then McCoy shows up in the Ghost Rockets era in 1946. You know, A year later, he's investigating the Ghost Rockets. He's involved in that. When we get to uh, late in 1946, he is called by Nathan Twining, who was the air material commander at the time, and set up an unofficial investigation into these lights, these objects, what are being seen, because it's being seen around the world. It's still going on. And then, of course, when the Arnold, invest- Arnold sighting took place, McCoy is brought in uh, officially to investigate that. And the letter that Twining writes in September of 1947, which is the... the phenomenon is something real and not illusionary and fictitious. That letter was probably authored by Howard McCoy. So he is Interesting. He is involved in all this phenomena up to 1947 and then beyond that. So he kind of controls the f- flow of information and what the where the investigations are going.
1: Did the late Philip Corso's name pop up in any of this? No. Not no. at all. Not at
0: all. No. This is prior to Corso, and if he was involved in anything at all, it wouldn't have been in the purview of Project Blue Book. There was nothing about Corso and, and his activities in Project Blue Book in the administrative files or the uh, OS, OSI files that are attached to the Project Blue Book uh, files that you can, you can look at.
1: are the actual Blue Book files now, Kevin?
0: They're at the National Archives. When they were de- declassified in 1976, they went first to the Air Force uh, archives at Maxwell Air Force Base. And we need to, we need to take a, a bow, uh, debt of gratitude to Jack Webb, because he's the one that got, <laughs> got them all microfilmed. He was wanted to do a series called Project UFO back in the 1970s. Really? And so he paid to have them all microfilmed so he could have a copy of the file. So we've got we to gotta reach out to Jack Webb and say, thank you, Jack, on that one. But they went, to, um, they went to Maxwell Air Force Base. A friend of mine, Robert Cornett, and I were able to access the files there because we learned they were there. I was writing UFO articles, and I'd call the editor, and he'd, well, I'll call you back later, you know, and, and it was hard to getting through them. And I called him one day and said, you know, I can get the Project Blue Book files. And my editor didn't call. His boss called immediately and started telling me what I should look for in the files. I didn't tell him that anybody who knew they were an actual Air Force case would probably go look at them. We were able to do that. The first thing we did when we got there, we got a hold of the indexes, and it had all the names of the people in it. And we went through all the unidentifieds and wrote down all the names of the people so we could put the names back in the files when they were released publicly to the National Archives, where they are now. Um, The Air Force went through and redacted all the names.
1: Were the files blacked out like we see so many documents these days?
0: Just mostly the names were taken out. The witnesses' names were taken out. And the one that really cracked me up is the, the Arnold sighting. And there's a telephone interview with Arnold and an Air Force officer. And they've even blacked out his initials, K-A. But in grease pencil on the first page in letters that are about a half inch high, it says Arnold sighting.
1: So, That's interesting.
0: Well, they didn't do a very good job of blacking out the names. I've, I've rarely found a file where if I went through it huh. carefully, I couldn't find a name.
1: When I hear Lubbock, Texas, I think of the home of the late Buddy Holly. And, uh, but there was a UFO case in Lubbock called the Lubbock Lights. Tell us about that.
0: This was a series of sightings. that started with a group of college professors sitting around. It was uh, Texas University. It's Texas Tech now. Um, and saw these lights fly over, and they didn't get a good look at them. And they thought, well, maybe they'll come back, and they set up all these kind of um, observations of these lights flying over. A guy named Carl Hart uh, Jr. took photographs of them a couple of days later. And the photographs have never really been explained. He took five photographs of a, um, a V-shaped formation. It seems it was indep- independent lights in it uh, because they moved in relation to one another. I was in Lubbock on my way to Roswell. I was actually in Lubbock in doing part of the Roswell investigation, and on Lark. I looked his name up in the phone book, and he was there. So I called him. Huh. And chatted with him about that, and I said, "What did you what, what did you see?" Knowing that teenagers who took photographs of UFOs usually came out years later and admitted, "Yeah, I faked the thing." And there's many, many famous photographs right. where, where that's happened. I said, "What did you t- what did you photograph?" Figuring, well, you know, he's 60 years old now; he'll tell me what he saw. And he says, "I still don't know what I photographed." So it's kind of unusual. Uh, the Air Force explanation: it was birds flying in formation. Birds. I talked to the. Uh, the the, uh, DNR, uh, the Department of Natural Resources at Lubbock and all of this stuff, they said the only birds in the area that flew in formations like that was uh, uh, a duck. And it had a dark bill, so it would be reflecting the city lights as the Air Force had proposed. They said, well, it was plover. Plover don't fly in V formations. And we've got those photographs that Hart took, and you've got the photographs that are unexplained a uh, professional photographer for the newspaper, I think his guy, the guy's name was Ham, was on the top of the building of the Avalanche Journal trying to photograph the lights as they went over. He was unable to do it. He could never get a good photograph of the birds and all of that sort of thing. So it, it sort of shows that Hart's photographs are very, very important. And that's one of the things in in the Project Blue book I was able to do. I got was able to talk to Carl Hart Jr. about what he saw. I talked to Al Chop, who was in the radar room during the Washington National sightings, all the sightings over Washington D.C. in 1952 that uh, got got the uh, my favorite headline in a newspaper, Cedar Rapids Gazette banner headline in July of 1952 says saucer swarm over Capitol. It's like a headline out of a science fiction movie. And uh, I was talking to Al Chop, I talked to Dewey Forney, both of them were in the radar room on the second night when the were, objects were there and I got their opinions of what they saw so I could bring that to bear in the book that really hadn't been done before where people had talked to these kinds of people so I was able to talk to a lot of people who were involved in the sightings uh, in today's environment what they saw, what they did, and how they reacted to it, as opposed to what the Air Force said during their investigations. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern
1: and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.